ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good morning, this is Chickie Fitzgerald. It's Friday, February 13th, 2015, and happy Valentine's Day weekend to all. I am really, really thrilled about this morning, and you know, it's, it's hard sometimes to get thrilled about numbers and accounting, but we are going to talk about uh, one woman's passion really to save small and mid-market companies uh, from extinction, which, uh, as she will share with you, is, is a real challenge these days. The book is called Accounting for the Numberphobic, a survival guide for small business owners. And our guest today is Don Fotopoulos. Don, welcome. Thank you. Chicky, it's so good to be with you. Well, it was funny because before we started, we talked about uh, writing a book. And, and uh, I, I have actually written four, and I'm in the process of, of writing my first uh, allegorical-style novel. So, uh, and I can completely appreciate what you said, that no one writes books to make money or, to, or for the fame of it all. You've so, written four. You're a martyr. <laughs> you're a total well, martyr. My, my books were, were all industry tomes. I mean, my first book sold for $995, but we only sold a couple of hundred of them, which at that price point, you don't have to sell a lot. Um, right. But this this will be my first book that will be published through a business publisher as opposed to self-publishing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I am a bit of a martyr, but uh, <laughs> like you, I'm writing it for a reason and for my passion, which is changing the name of the game. Yeah. Right. So for well, you, yeah. uh, you know, I, I want to hear the backstory because the story doesn't start here with the publishing of the book. So tell That's us right. about you. Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. I was at an Intuit QuickBooks conference, and someone said to me, how long did it take you to write the book? I said, well, it took me four months to write the manuscript, but it took me 15 years to develop the content. And she <laughs> smiled knowingly. I said, you know, eight years ago, a colleague of mine who's a CPA and a lawyer reached out to me, and he said, you know, there's somebody uh, in my neighborhood that's had a business for 40 years. It's a metal stamping business. They have 33 employees. They own the building. They own the land. Um, he had a heart attack and he didn't make it. And his wife and his daughter inherited the business. And the business is hemorrhaging cash. And he said, I don't think they've got six months to live. Would you mind coming in as part of the team to work with these people? The wife and the daughter inherited the business and they know how to make coffee. Right. They know nothing about this business. And so what flashed in my mind is here's this business that's been around for two generations 33 households are being supported by this business they already own the business they've already absorbed all the startup risk which is right is onerous right and if this business goes out you think you we're going to be able to replace that business in six months or 18 months no way right no way Right. So I looked at him and I said, I'll go to the wall for this business. What do we have to do? Let's take a look at what's here. Let's stop the bleeding. Let's put a plan together. Let's train these people up. If these are the right people to run it, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But clearly, if they've been around this long, 
the people, at least some of the people inside, have unbelievable knowledge about the industry, unbelievable subject matter expertise. We can't lose that. So fast forward seven, eight years later, a little sleepy, you know, really struggling million and a half dollar business is a fifteen million dollar business. Okay, and now it's not thirty three people, but it's one hundred and fifty people. Wow. Okay, and we did an intervention, and I, I have to tell you, Chicky, there are two kinds of consultants in the world. One kind stands on the shore and looks at the client that's drowning in the riptide and say, hey, with a bullhorn, right, and says, hey, Fred, you know, kick a little harder and, and swim over to the left and you'll be fine. I'll send you my invoice next week. That's one model. And the other model is I'm going to wrap, I'm going to put a rope around my waist, I'm going to put a stake in the sand, and I'm going in. Right. And you go and you swim out into the riptide. You get next to the client. And you go, listen to me. You're going to drown if you keep doing what you're doing. So I'm going to tell you to do something that doesn't, doesn't feel right, but I've done this thousands of times, and if you trust me, we will get to shore. So we're going to swim parallel to shore first, get out of the riptide, then we're going to swim in. And you do that once, and you do that a dozen times, and you do that a hundred times, and you do that a few thousand times, and you know what? You can change the course of history. You can change the course of the U.S. economy. So why am I so passionate? I can't stand on the sidelines anymore and right. watch unbelievably talented people, really smart, talented people, and watch them go down for lack of knowledge and wisdom because that's right. really the gap, right? So let me ask you a question, Chicky. Do you drive a car? I do. You do? Good for you. I do too. So what do you do when you drive a car? You get into the car, right? You sit down, you strap yourself in, close the door, you put your key in the ignition, you put it in drive, and then you shut your eyes and expect to get to your destination, right? <laughs> I get your point. <laughs> okay. So if you're going to drive, you got to drive with your eyes open. Can we agree? Absolutely. So I did a little, and this is what galvanized me truly. I mean, that first experience, of course, but this is what really drove it home. I'm a panel moderator for the New York Times Small Business Summit Conference. And every slice of American small business life walks through this conference. So there's a woman who's teaching pole dancing for fitness. There's some guy out of Harvard with a PhD doing medical devices. Everything shows up there. And I asked a question among 5,000 small business owners over a period of five years. Simple, true, false question. Put a little yellow sticky on each of their chairs. And I said, true or false, and a net income statement and a P&L are the same thing, true or false, and just hand it in. Out of 100 people, guess how many knew that that was a true statement? You have to guess. 5%. You are so optimistic. Try one out of 100. Wow. Okay, try one out of 100. And I said, if they don't understand even that, which is as basic as it gets, right? That's basic definitional stuff. Because right. I'm a college professor, that's my day job. Basic definitional stuff, they're mortgaging their lives, they're getting bank loans, they're pitching investors, and they don't even know that. It's like lemmings to the sea to die. I mean, yes. what, when I finally figured out how deep the, the, the lack of understanding was, I said, it's not a surprise to me that 50% are failing. It's shocking to me that 50% survive. <laughs> That's the shocking statistic. 
Exactly. So I asked Well, as, as we talked before the show started, I mean, the the interesting thing and and I your passion comes across so boldly in, in everything that you're saying. Um, this is a systemic problem that actually does extend up in, into corporate life, and so many senior executives um, really have no knowledge, and, unless the company is going public and you know they're having to go through the you know painstaking work of that. But even then, um, you know this I I believe, and and uh, you know as a college professor, I'm sure that you are passionate also about the educational side. I think it starts with our kids because my kids do not understand even the basics of finance, and yeah. you know they're both teenagers, and uh, you know I spend a lot of time helping them understand that. Well, good for you because most don't, either because they don't have the knowledge base to do it or they don't know how. But I have to tell you, so I took a little poll, another poll. I'm a facilitator at the uh, Kaufman Fast Track Program here in New York. After 9-11, they got a big grant from Kaufman to help small businesses get back on their feet. And I asked a question. I said, okay, we're going to do a little free association. I said, I'm going to say a word, and you're going to write down your unfiltered thoughts. So I said, I'm going to say the word accounting. What comes to mind? And it was absolutely hilarious. Like the feedback was hilarious. And it's in chapter one of my book, you know, makes me want to crawl into a fetal position and cry. That right. was one. Another said, I'd rather spend the weekend with my mother-in-law. You know, all of these <laughs> things. So you get at the gestalt of why people don't even want to go near this stuff. But more importantly, they think their accountants and their bookkeepers are going to be the surrogate. Like, I have an account. I have a bookkeeper. I don't need to know and understand this stuff. So what I say to them is, look, your accountant's not going to run your business any more than your mechanic is going to drive your car. Right. Okay? And the other thing is, you don't have to become an expert in accounting. That's not what I'm arguing for. I'm arguing for at least understanding how to read your financial dashboard, which is your income statement, cash flow statement, and balance sheet. Why? It's like being in a marriage, Chicky, right? You're in a marriage. Your spouse is always speaking to you, but you're not paying attention. And one day the spouse throws up his or her hands and says, I'm done. You go, ah, I never saw it coming, right? Which is the equivalent of bankruptcy. Oh, I never saw it coming. Well, of course you didn't see it coming because you weren't looking in the right places. So... (laughs) So well, and, and let me let me tell you because I, as I shared with you before the call, um, I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, I am building my second uh, technology company, and the the first uh, well prior to starting uh, that second technology company, I had been a very very successful strategic consultant. I still have my consultancy. I, I've been in business for 19 years, but at that time, I had been in business uh, just about 10 years. And, you know, my firm built LasVegas.com for the two major casino companies. I mean, we, we were um, really riding high. Uh, you know, even after September 11th, we recovered really fast. And we were making uh, such amazing margins, and the business was just coming to me. Uh, literally, I mean, I never had to do any marketing other than attending a few trade shows a year. Uh, but, I, I, you know, I didn't advertise. It was just people would call me. And uh, in the mid-2005 time frame, uh, I still remember distinctly, I got off of an airplane, uh, I was traveling all the time, and I was walking up the jet bridge, and I was so 
tired. I almost didn't think I could make it. Well, as it turned out, I was having a, a problem with my blood. It wasn't cancer or anything uh, uh, deadly, but it was very, very serious. And I ended up uh, being out for three months from work. And when I came back, I said to my husband, uh, you know, honey, I, I, I don't want to be here. And, mm-hmm. you know, his office was right next to mine. He's like, oh, honey, you know, it's your first day back after three months. Go home and put your feet up. It's like, no, honey, you don't understand. I don't want to be here. And I'm telling you, Don, his face turned white. And it was because of just what you're saying. He had been running the bookkeeping. He had, you know, we had a, a bookkeeper, but he had been r- running the accounting. And I never looked at it. Seriously, I never, ever looked at it. But when I told him I wanted to stop the spigot of revenue, he yeah. knew we had almost 40000 a month that we had to make just to cover the basic nut at home wow. uh, and yep. at the business. And yep. Uh, you know, and and so I, and and I truly have no excuse because I am extremely financially savvy. One of the things I do for my client is all of the financial modeling for their business, but I uh-huh. I wasn't watching my own. Um, so I, I you know I'll stop my story there because that that really isn't important, but it happens every day in business every day where and you have don't to, have your eye yeah. on the ball. Yeah, and you know what, Chicky. Um, Women are particularly bad at this, and I know that sounds terribly sexist, but it's been my experience that women are more number phobic than men. So, and what I also find is that there, for people unlike you, but for most, there's a lot of shame around this topic. You know, I should know this, but I don't, right. and I don't know where to get it. And I know that there'll be some insights, but I'm going to shut my eyes and get more clients and pray that's going to take care of all my cash flow exactly. problems. Oh, you are doesn't. so, so right. Okay, so one of the things that I, I – I sat down with Ron Bucalo, who's my illustrator for the book, and he's a 20-year Disney veteran, and he's a very funny man. And I said, okay, Ron, I've got the toughest challenge of your career. You've got to make accounting funny. You got to make it funny. Like when someone cracks open this book, they got to start laughing because the only way we're going to break through is first of all to simplify the subject, but to make it funny and engaging and not dry and boring because I'm a college professor and I know from dry and boring. And I said that this has to be funny and it's got to be simple but not simplistic. On the other side of complexity is not simplistic, it's simple. And it's right. very, very difficult to take just the core of what you need and break it down. And um, and the illustrations are metaphors. They're hilarious. They just they lighten up the topic. But what is most important about the book, it's really a book on business strategy. It's really a book on how to make better business decisions. But the truth is you can't play a game unless you know how to keep score, right? right. So the first thing... You know, if you're teaching somebody a new sport, what's the first thing you do? Well, you teach them what the objective of the game is. Yes. Right? But how come so many small business owners go into business and they don't even know what the objectives are? Well, the objective is to live off your own cash flow. Well, why is cash flow different than sales? And it is different. And it's different for for at least a half a dozen different reasons, right? But if you understand the playing field, if you understand the goals up front – then you're not just on this hamster wheel, and if things aren't going well, you're just running faster and faster on the same hamster wheel. Something right. has to change, and the first thing that has to change is your understanding. So one of the things that I say in the book is I say, you know, have you ever watched the movie The Wizard of Oz? 
Have you ever watched the TV? Yeah, okay. All of us have, pretty much all of us have. So the second to the last scene, they finally get into the inner sanctum to see the wizard, right? And it's this huge hall. And it's very intimidating, and the the, fla- the the light flares, the the flames are flaring, and his voice is booming, and the dog jumps out of Dorothy's little basket, and she's horrified, right? And the, this tiny little fuzzy creature goes over to the curtain, and he pulls the curtain aside, and what do you see? You see this Absolutely. tiny little gray-haired man from Kansas. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. Right. So the whole purpose of the book is for that to occur in the minds of the readers. So what I'll do is I have thousands of case studies, thousands of stories of people from bakers and photographers and doctors and uh, interior designers, I mean, name it. And they're sprinkled throughout the book so that everybody can find themselves in some of these stories, whether you're a service business or a product business. And you have to read the comments on Amazon. These are people I have never met before. I got this this five-paragraph gushing testimonial from this guy, Ted, who said, I'm only on Chapter 3, but it's changing my life. And oh, I thought, wow. okay, okay, that's the reason that you write a book. Yeah, it's that, then it's worth the pain. Yeah, it is. And there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. And knowledge is like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I understand it. So there are tons of people who are reading the book who have, you know, taken accounting courses. But we teach accounting backwards in this country. We teach it backwards. We teach the building blocks first. We don't teach the objectives first. Right. And the objectives are being able to read your management reports, which is that dashboard I just mentioned. Right? The three key statements. If you understand and can read those three key statements, and maybe it'll take you two weeks to learn it, okay? If, it, if you invest two weeks of your life to change the next 20 years of your future, is that a worthwhile investment? Yeah, I think it is. Absolutely. Right? I think it is, and that's all I'm really arguing for. So here's this guy, Ted, who only got to pass Chapter 3. So the first three chapters are essentially the, the answers the question, are you making money, right? Because... In every business, I don't care what it is, and you know this better than most, right? You have to answer three questions. Am I making money? Do I have enough cash to pay the bills? And am I building wealth or destroying it? Am I making money? Do I have enough cash? Am I building wealth or destroying it? So where do you go to get those answers? Well, am I making money? You go to the net income statement, and I'll show you. It's money in, money out, and what's left over. It's no more complicated than that. And the cash flow statement is similar, except it's based on the cash, which is the blood of your business, right? Blood is to your body as cash is to your business. So you've got to right. keep an eye on cash. And then last but not least is your balance sheet. I mean, I know people, Chicky, that have been at these businesses for years and in some cases decades, and they have nothing to show for all of that sacrifice and hard work. And it's heartbreaking. So right. I'll give you a case in point. The lady that took my my portrait is a genius. She's a fabulous photographer. She's in the wrong market, but I digress. She's out in Ohio, and I I had I needed it for the book, and I had used a photographer in New York, and I looked ill. You know, the photographs came out so poorly. So I called this lady whom I've known for years, and I said, I'm so desperate, you've got to make me look like Diane Sawyer. So I jumped on a plane, and we had a three-hour session, and every single picture, maybe with the exception of two or three, were just spectacular. So we're having coffee after it's over, and I said, so, Dee, her name is Denise Zisman. I said, so, Dee, 
how's the business? And she burst into tears, and I said, that's oh, a bad no. answer. <laughs> that's a bad answer. What's going on? And she's been at this 19 years, okay? She said, I'm killing myself. I don't even have $1,000 in my bank account December the 31st. I wow. said, well, I can't accept that. I just can't accept that. Her studio is in her home, and it's a professional studio. She built the house, and she built the studio, the house around the studio. So, there, you know, it's not like she's paying rent, Right? There's no reason why she can't make money if she's as good as she is and she has demand for her product or service. So for four days, we ripped apart her business. We put it back together again. And I said, look, this is like in the summer, last summer. I said, look, I don't know exactly where you're going to end up by December, but if you follow the yellow brick road, if you follow this prescription, you will have at least $5,000 in the bank by the time Christmas rolls around. And I know that doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it's better than you've been, and we can build on that. So she called me the second week of December with tears of joy. She said, I have $7,500 in the bank, and I have never in 19 years had that. Wow. Okay, so it's not going $7,500 isn't going to change your life, but it's just being able to see the fruit of your labor and your sacrifices. You know, yes. do you have an expensive hobby? Or do you have a real business? And it really and there's a big difference between those two. And listen, I am sure there are tons of people listening to this broadcast who are single parents. And very few of us can afford expensive hobbies. And if we're really going to put ourselves on the line to run a business and extend ourselves for others and to offer great products and services, we deserve to get compensated for that. And we need to see the fruit of our labor. We absolutely need to for survival's sake. Right. So the, that's why the book is called The Survival Guide for Small Business Owners, because it truly is. And it is the culmination of 15 to 20 years, at this point it's 20 years, of being a consultant and doing turnarounds. And I started right. that whole process when I was at Citicorp, uh, Citigroup. I was a vice president there. I was a mid-career hire. And um, it was in the early mid-90s when that was the last time Citibank went bankrupt. And, you know, they would throw some businesses over their shoulder and say, yeah, you know, let's see what Photopolis can do with it. And the good news about taking over a business that's failing is you it's hard to screw it up any worse than it's already been screwed up. <laughs> you know, you can't – there's few mistakes left to make. So the only way up is either up or completely out. Right. So – when you do enough of those, you get very good at identifying the top three or top five major problems where if you could move the needle just a little bit in the right direction, you know, the whole organization, the whole future of the organization shifts for the better. Right. And um, and so I've, I've become, that's part of my reputation and I'm good at it. Um, so what the book really is, is capturing a lot of those learnings and making it available in simple language to people that are struggling. So case in point, you know, um, most small business owners do not understand that you don't run your business on sales. You run it on gross margin. Right. And most people don't know what gross margin is, and that's basically mm -hmm. your gross profit. If something costs, right. If you're selling something for 10 bucks and it costs you $7 to make it, then your gross margin is 3 bucks. It's all That's all that is. 
Right. And well, all you have to do is watch Shark Tank a couple of times, and, and that becomes pretty apparent. Well, well, it's very interesting. You know, so you say Shark Tank. You know, I've been doing Shark Tank Insights. I've actually been reviewing all of the pitches on Shark Tank on Google Hangouts. Did you? Oh, know what a great idea! Yeah, yeah, because there's so much that's flying around in the moment, and nobody really explains it to you. So one of the things that I've been doing is I've been saying, well, if somebody's saying I want a hundred thousand for ten percent of my business, what does that really mean? It means that that person's valuing their business at a million dollars. Well, on what basis? Right. That's right. the follow-up question. On what basis? Well, you know what? You got to understand how to read your balance sheet and understand the difference between assets and liabilities to at least begin to answer that question. Right. And that's chapters, you know, six, seven, and eight in my book. Um, the other thing that I talk about in the book is how to win friends and influence bankers. So how to think like a banker and an investor. So if you're going to pitch on Shark Tank or if you're going to go reach out to your bank for a credit line, you've got to understand the world from their perspective. And in order for me to write Chapter 8, you know, as a former banker, I know most of this stuff, but I sat down with a senior vice president at one of the big banks here in New York, and she did a spectacular download for me as to how she looks at and how they review the credit portfolios for their small businesses. And it's radioactive. I mean, it is a true insider's look at how a banker thinks. And I was pretty hard-pressed to find this anywhere else so before anybody takes out a loan or speaks to a banker or thinks about investments, at the very least, you should read Chapter 8 of the book because it's going to make you very, very smart. So, you know, the sharks will turn around and give counter offers and stuff, and you have to ask the reasons why. Well, there's a material difference between the way they value a business and the way the owner values the business. <laughs> Definitely. Right? And someone's got to translate that. So I've been the translator, and it's been really fun. I had a couple of people reach out to me on Twitter, and they said, uh, yeah, I never watched Shark Tank until I watched your Google Hangouts. Now I'm really interested <laughs> because <laughs> now I understand it better. You know, it's not right. just drama, but it's it's a deeper understanding of what's really going on. Oh, and completely. So and, you know, I, my kids, actually, who are 14 and 16, uh, all, you know, they both love it. And it's funny because if you ask my daughter what she wants to be when she grows up, she wants uh-huh. to be one of the sharks, right? Uh-huh. Because she wants to, you know, to know business so deeply that, you know, she can just on the face of somebody walking in, you know, can can assess whether it's a good deal or not. Right. And and I, I am so excited about that, that particular chapter because I can tell you in my current business, I have been going back and forth and back and forth about whether to raise money. I raised in my last uh, technology company, uh, my husband and I put in a million and, and I raised six million externally. And I, wow, I raised that from a single, uh, well, the bulk of it I raised from a single investor here in Tampa. Uh-huh. And you know, and and that that's a, a another discussion for another day. Uh, best had over a very big bottle of wine. Um, oh, you but, bet, Chicky. I'm all up for it. <laughs> Let's not miss that opportunity. No, no, no. And uh, you and I have a lot more to talk about. But you know, what I was going to say is that. Um, you know, now as I sit, knowing that I can raise money, and I, I help a lot of companies uh, do just that. I, I write business plans and, and help them frame their business. And generally, I do that for a piece of the equity of the business because I don't uh, necessarily want to be in the work for hire uh, business anymore. I've done that for 19 yep. years, and I really want to build my long-term wealth. 
um, yep. you know, which comes from investing my time. So um, I can't wait to read that chapter. In fact, uh, you know, I was telling you before the show started that, uh, you know, I, I don't think I got the physical copy of your book, and I don't think I can wait. I think I must download it on Kindle uh, this afternoon and just start reading it this weekend. Um, but I, I'm so excited, particularly because I am so knowledgeable about numbers. But I think that there's still something I'm missing. And, you know, let, let me just read a couple of the titles of your chapters uh, to mm-hmm. folks because uh, you've already walked through so much of the first part. So you talk about the income statement, the cash flow statement, and the balance sheet really being your financial dashboard. And, yep. you know, dashboards uh, and the whole uh, tool set to let people look at their business – uh, they were in fashion back in the 90s and, and the early part of 2000, and then uh, just attention went someplace else. And now the big buzzword is KPIs. What are your key performance indicators? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But so many people who maybe can understand the key performance indicators can't translate that onto the income statement, the cash flow statement, yep. the balance sheet. So yep. I, I love that, that you talk about the financial dashboard in Chapter 1. Chapter 2, you talk about the income statement as being the key to growing your profits. And I've watched in my industry, I, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm in the travel industry and have consulted you know, to most of the leading brands uh, in my industry, in particular in the online travel arena. And uh, you may or may not have been aware over the last year or so, uh, you know, there have been battles between the airlines and the online travel agencies. Oh, sure. Um, and, and all of a sudden, you know, the airlines say, well, we, you know, we don't really value you, so we're going to pull out of that channel because you cost us too much, right? Mm-hmm. So they're looking at the cost, but they're not looking at the volume and the profitability. And That's it's like right. you cannot, you know, it's, it's like having uh, sunglasses on and you've you've covered up one of your eyes, right? Or, you know, just yeah. masked over. And uh, I've actually got a blog where I've got that graphic because it, it just slays me that they say, oh, well, this channel costs too much. Really? Well, here's the point. No, you raise a really, really good point. It's, there are costs and there are investments. And the yes. difference is a cost you never recover. An investment, it, it you get a return on investment. It is the ratio, right? If I spend a dollar, do I get 10 back in gross margin? Do I get 5 back in gross margin? Right. And if you can't read a P&L, you have no idea. So you're making decisions with your eyes closed. You're exactly right. Yes. So, and, and then the next one, you already used this metaphor when you asked about me having a car. Uh, the mm-hmm. next one is about using the income statement to improve profits and actually driving with your eyes open. And, you know, you clearly, uh, I always use the map uh, metaphor and, and, and the GPS that, you know, unless you know where you're going, you can't even plug in the address, right? Yeah, right. You may have the best GPS in the world, but if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't help you. But that's so, right. That's true. Yeah, I love the next one, though, and and I want to spend just a little bit talking about this. Um, Break-even and cash flow positive. Mm -hmm. Um, Those two terms uh, are sometimes used interchangeably, but but they're not really the same. No, they're not. So so talk to us a little bit about the – your business being truly self-sustaining versus making back all of your investment. Okay. There is a moment, hopefully, in the life of every business where gross margin, your gross profits, 
are at least enough to cover your expenses on paper. Right. So <clears throat> gross profits are what you have left over from your initial sales to pay all your bills, right? You have fixed expenses, insurance, rent, whatever, and then variable expenses, marketing, um, salaries, whatever, and then taxes and all of that. And <clears throat> the break-even point is when your profits are exactly zero, where the money that's coming in from revenues and gross margin and the money going out in terms of all of those expenses, direct and indirect, gets you to zero. So it's almost like imagine a scale in your head where they are exactly equal in weight, right? Money coming in, money going out. There's no extra left over. There's no profit. But right. you're not in the hole either. Okay, that's the break-even point. And what's interesting about the break-even point is if you, the faster you can get to that break-even point, or I call it the sleep at night fact, the sleep at night moment, right? The faster you can get there, the sooner the business is going to become self-sustaining. Right. The analysis doesn't end there, but it really starts there. So what my experience has been is that when you start a business, you're paying for your learning curve and you're paying for time. Right. You're basically paying for the time, financing the time that it takes to ramp up revenues fast enough and profitably enough to cover your expenses, right? That's what really break-even is all about. Right. Now, you can you can push through break-even. That's the objective, right, because you're taking on all this risk. You have to develop some profitability. But once you break through break-even and you're starting to generate positive profits, in other words, the gross margin coming in is more than your expenses, that's when you can that's when you have the probability of a long-term sustainable business. So the question on the table is how do you get there? And the book right. talks about that. The other challenge is when you're in a market, a soft market where demand is soft, where people aren't spending including business customers aren't spending as much money as they were, budgets are tight, your revenues start to come in unless your expenses come in at least as much you're going to fall below break-even. Right. So, you know, the curve doesn't just go one way. Sometimes exactly. you can slide back down that curve and you can you can be underneath break-even and you don't even know it unless you can read your net income statement. So that break-even point is an inflection point. It's a very important point. And you need to know, for example, how many units of something, let's say you're selling T-shirts, how many T-shirts you need to sell at 10 bucks at a cost of 7 bucks in order for you to cover your expenses. So when I owned Bedazzled, for example, when I was young and foolish, when I was 23, it was my first business, <laughs> you know, we would, um, we had, you know, beautiful cotton T-shirts. They were screen printed and all of that. They were expensive to produce. So let's say it cost us, seven, uh, let's say it cost us 5 bucks a piece, and we sold them for 10 So each time we sold a T-shirt, it generated $5 in gross margin. Let's say, for example, that our expenses were $50,000. Well, I knew that I needed to sell 10,000 T-shirts in order for me to cover my expenses. That's in right. a year's time, right? I knew that number. I was sitting with a, a small business owner just recently who was spending, if I tell you, multi-million dollars on getting a fashion line off the ground. Very, very expensive, very high risk, by the way, because it's retail-driven. Right. Off the ground, and I asked her a simple question, how many units do you need to sell to reach to break even? And her response to me was, I have no idea. 
And she's trying to raise money from investors, by the way. Oh, no. Okay, so the first question any investor worth his or her salt is going to ask is, what's your break-even point? How many units do you need to sell, and how do you plan on getting that done? Who's going to buy it? How many are they going to buy? You know, you, that's part of your sales plan. You talked about putting a business plan together. Right. That You know, that break-even point is absolutely essential, and you've got to know how you're going to get there. Here's the other thing about break-even points. If you're selling two, t- two different types of T-shirts, one T-shirt kicks off $5 a unit in gross margin, the other one kicks off $10 a unit in gross margin, guess what? If you focus on the more profitable T-shirt and you sell that more frequently, you're going to get to break even a lot faster. That's Definitely. just basic reasoning, right? But if you don't know what the gross margin is by product, you have no idea where to focus your marketing efforts. Right, or so by channel. See, and and this is what comes by out. That's yeah, right. it comes out so That's clearly right. on Shark Tank when, when someone comes in and says that, you know, they want to go, uh, they've been successful uh, in selling their product online and they've made a million dollars so far doing that and now they want to go into retail. And you can see, particularly Mark Cuban, who is very savvy, uh, in online sales, you know, he's always the one who, who just jumps and says, why in the world would you want to do that when you're cutting your margin in half? Well, that's right, because there's another player in the mix, and everybody yes. has to make a gross margin. So your gross margin gets cut in half so the retailer can make a profit, yes. right? Because the retail price is pretty much whatever it's going to be because that's what the market will bear. So now that you have another player in the distribution chain, they've got to make money too, so you cut your margins. That's what's going on. Right. Exactly. So I've seen people – so at any rate, break-even, that's what break-even is. That's why it's so important. And that's why you need to know which channels are most profitable and which prof, uh, products are most profitable. So channel name and clients, right, distribution outlets. Um, in terms of cash flow – Unless you're selling ice cream, Chicky, right, where you, right. you put an ice cream cone in, in, in someone's hand and they pay you right away, the likelihood is that you're going to get paid at some point in the future, especially if you're in a service business like mm-hmm. graphics design or interior design or whatever. Or consulting. Or consulting, sure. <laughs> so there are, there are a number of things that are going on between the time you book the sale, right, you book the sale as revenues on your profit and loss statement and the time you actually get paid for it when you book the cash in your bank account when you finally get paid. There's a time lag. That's for starters. There's always a time lag. And hopefully the time lag isn't longer than 30 days. If it is, then the likelihood you'll ever get paid goes down. Right. So there's a time lag. The second thing is sometimes uh, if you're selling products and the product shows up and it's it's got a problem or it's... it's, um, or there's a return label because they don't all sell through or whatever the story is. So there may be a difference between what you bill and what you actually get paid. So there may be discounts or there may be refunds that happen between those two transactions. So revenues don't always translate to cash for that reason too. Right. And then the third reason, which is a very unhappy reason, but sometimes your clients go bankrupt or they have problems on their side with cash flow and they can't afford to pay you, or they have to pay you dribs and drabs over a period of time. Exactly. So you have to keep tabs on cash because you actually could be showing negative profitability. So you could actually be in the hole profitability-wise and still be able to sustain the business so long as you're getting paid for your revenues. The definition of bankruptcy is running out of cash. That's the definition of bankruptcy. (laughs) 
And Bear Stearns, by the way, showed a profit on the Friday before the Monday that they declared bankruptcy. So it happens even to the big boys. Right. Right. So the reason why there's a difference between, um, you know, uh, measuring profitability and measuring your cash flow is for that reason. Sometimes revenues don't translate into cash. So you've got to track both. Right. You know, the the last chapter in the book, the title is The Numbers Make the Business. And I I just have to uh, tell you just a a quick story here. Um, I ran a business within a a division of American Airlines, within the Sabre uh, company. Mm -hmm. And the business uh, had not made money, but uh, the company had continued to uh, invest in our business unit, uh, you know, trying to build a new business. And uh, I went to the staff meeting of Bob Crandall, who then ran American Airlines mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. whole AMR uh, enterprise. Mm-hmm. And he was a finance guy from the word go. I mean, you know, his right. degree had been in finance, and so everything he did was by the numbers. And um, in this and meeting, most CEOs, he, by the way, that's the case. Yes. Most CEOs. Yes. Mm-hmm. But uh, in this meeting, um, he he shut my business down. He, you know, and pretty much he came to my uh, my business's name on the agenda, and he said, "Oh, is that still around? Shut it down." And then he went to the next item on the agenda, and I had seventy plus people working for me at oh, that time. Wow. So, um, you know, I sat, you know, dealing with my personal devastation of the news being delivered in this you know, 40-person staff meeting. But the next person he went on to um, was the leader of one of the major business units, and he has asked her some questions um, about her numbers, and she couldn't answer them. And he said words I will never forget, and I'm sure she will never forget. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business, and if you don't know your business, you can't work for me. And, And she left the room crying, Mm-hmm. And he came over to me after the meeting, and he said, you know, in his gravelly voice, you know, Chickie, if we had thought you were a failure, we would have gotten rid of you. We just thought the business was a failure, so don't worry about it. And then he, he walked away. And that made actually made it all better for me. I mean, I still had to deal with letting go of 70 people, which is never fun. Um, but I will never forget that day because I think what happened to her was way worse than what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um and and much more devastating because in front of all of your peers to be exposed is not knowing your numbers. Um, but but in a small business, it's even worse than that because nobody even has to know. It's just all of a sudden, you know, you're you're uh, you're taking down the sign on on the building that you've been in, or uh, you know, you're telling people that you're on sabbatical and you're trying to figure out your next move. You know, so it isn't. Uh, quite as public uh, as, as that humiliation that I just uh, described, um, but it's every bit as devastating. So the numbers well, do make you, the business. They mm-hmm. do make the business, and I'll tell you something. You know, it's been sort of interesting to see how people have been using the book. By the way, most people are buying multiple copies because as they read it and their eyes get open, they go, "Holy cow! I know a dozen people in my network who should Absolutely. have this." So a lot of people were buying it for Christmas gifts or or birthday gifts or things, but. There was a guy um, who runs, I can, I'm going to guess it's a $10 million business, and he said, I bought a copy for each member of my executive team because I want my marketing person to understand how what she does drives the business. I want my sales guy to understand when he closes a deal what that means for the viability of the business. And so he's got to negotiate things like payment terms, when he closes a piece of business, it's not just about the sales. It's about mm-hmm. the terms of payment. 
So at any rate, he used that as a tutorial, and all of a sudden, everybody is seeing why the controller is such a maniac. Right. <laughs> because the controller sees everything that's going on in the business, and now they can all speak the same language. They understand how what they're doing ultimately affects the viability of the business and then ultimately their jobs. Right. So, you know what, Crandall may have been a little rough around the edges, but you know, how is it possible that somebody got to such an elevated position because I'm sure she wouldn't have been there unless she was quite senior? How is it possible she got to that position without knowing what really are the basics? Well, I think it relates back to what you said about women in general is first of all, I mean, yes, we are uh, more ignorant about numbers or maybe more afraid of them. But I, I think the other thing about women is we're more willing to hire people to do the things that we know we don't do well. Mm. And and mm-hmm. so we think that by hiring experts that, that all we have to do is manage them well and we don't necessarily have to know what they do. And when I do my strategic consulting, uh, particularly with, with executive teams, one of the first things I have them do is we get a big – uh, roll of butcher block paper, and we put it on the wall, and I draw a grid on it, which says across the top uh, in in two blocks, love and hate, and down the left-hand side, do well and do badly. Uh-huh. And then everybody takes a pile of sticky notes, and the sticky notes all have the same, you know, 12 or 15 things on them. So finance, doing presentations, uh, you know, public speaking, um, uh, you know, doing spreadsheets, doing PowerPoints. Um, all of those things that have to get done. And then they each go with, you know, and each one of the sticky notes has their initials on it. And so they go up and they put whether they think they love it and do it well, love it and do badly, mm-hmm, right, or mm-hmm. or they actually do it well but they hate it, right. And then mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I have them, uh, I give them a, a piece of uh, paper that has uh, little stickers on it, red and green, which is the green is it, it energizes me and the other one is it drains me. And it's a very, very revealing discussion. And almost always, you know, anything related to finance, um, you know, is always in the hate column. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, so interesting. It's, it's an exercise that helps expose. Uh, and you may not know, like, that you've got somebody who really secretly loves something, but they, they yes. just feel like they do it badly because they've never been mentored. They don't have the experience. And so that's yes. when you know you can nurture someone into a role, uh, you know, where they take a greater, um, you know, role in that function. So it would be really cool to know that somebody in marketing, you know, actually really loved um, economics or, you know, loved the, you know, just how numbers all fit together. And then mm-hmm. you can make them your your marketing analyst who, you know, is the keeper of the KPIs. Yeah. So yeah. Um, anyway, we have we have blown through almost an hour, and I know I, I told you we were going to try to stick to 30 minutes. So uh, <laughs> if you have to boil all of this down just to one thing that you want to listen or leave with our listeners, what would that be? Numbers are like, they're a story. They tell a story. And the same way a thermometer doesn't tell you how to dress in the morning, you have to learn how to interpret it. Your financial dashboard is the same way. But I will will give them one last word of encouragement, Chicky, and that is there are thousands of people who have learned what's in this book and it has changed their future. It truly has. 
And I encourage the people who are listening to say, if you invest a small amount of time, your future and your destiny can change for the better too. Well, I love that. And again, the name of the book is Accounting for the Number Phobic, a Survival Guide for Small Business Owners. And uh, John, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, you know, you've said several times that, that you you uh, actually are a professor. Uh, what is what is your day job today? What what do you do? Um, oh, in, I'm an associate in, in professor company? of business at the King's College in New York City, which is a private liberal arts school. Mm-hmm. And uh, I also am the founder of the award-winning website uh, Best Small Biz Help. Dot com, and you can certainly find me there. You'll find my missives there. You'll find my Shark Tank reviews there. And you can find me at Twitter, at Fatopolis, on Twitter, at Fatopolis or Best Biz Help. Um, um, I, uh, I have both platforms. But if uh, those of you who are listening, uh, I'm going I'm to do something I never do. I'm going to give you my personal email address. So if somebody wants to reach out, I'd love to hear from you, and that's D. Photopolis, that's my first initial and my last name, at gmail.com. Great. And again, it's F-O-T-O-P-U-L-O-S. That's right. Dawn, it has been just terrific. And again, uh, her website is bestsmallbizhelp.com, a solopreneur's lifeline, which uh, having been a solopreneur for the better part of 20 years, um, I wish I had found you 20 years ago. But I found you now. Better late than never, that's right. Definitely. Well, Dawn, I hope you and I have a chance to to meet. So you live in New York? I do live in New York, but I'm in Florida periodically. I, I, I have quite a few contacts down in the Palm Beach area, and I know Tampa is nowhere near there. But I do have connections in Tampa as well. So I, if you ever come up to New York, you must reach out to me. Well, I and definitely will. And, and one of my business yeah. partners is in New York, so that's actually in the cards uh, definitely in the next 30 days. Uh, but it's oh, way great. warmer here, so you might want to think about coming down. <laughs> Especially this weekend in the single digits. But I, I would love to meet you, Chicky. Please let's make that happen. Okay, definitely. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening today. Uh, Again, if you'd like to know more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, just go to executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. You can link off to uh, all of our radio shows, uh, to our Facebook page, and we've got a private Facebook page for our members as well. So thanks for joining us, and again, have a very happy Valentine's Day weekend. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. <laughs>